It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile. This is Malting's place in Fulham, SW6. A series of four-storey brown brick terraces in a curved block surrounded by industrial estates, council flats and looming cranes. Protected by roving cameras, high walls and heavy electronic gates. The security may seem like overkill given that the houses are bog-standard and the cars outside are nothing but crappy Beamers and Audis. This is far from an exclusive bolt hole for the rich and famous. But for some, maybe this protection was vital. 74 Maltings Place is an unremarkable building. In fact, it looks like the kind of new build you would find in any new town. It's tall and thin, with three bedrooms and a carport below. Back at the millennium's turn, this house was owned by Tommy Cressman, an independent businessman, heir to the Bristol Street Motors fortune, and his girlfriend, Jane Andrews, the former dresser to the Duchess of York. On Sunday the 17th of September 2000, after a romantic break in the French Riviera, the couple retired to their bed. Their relationship was tempestuous, tensions were high, and by the morning, Tommy would be dead. But did Jane kill him in an act of self-defense? Or was this a cold-blooded and brutal murder? My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 148, The Abuse of Jane Andrews, Part 1. There are two sides to every story, and this is Jane's. Jane Dawn Elizabeth Andrews was born on the 1st of April 1967 in Cleethorpes, Lincolnshire. A seaside town in the northeast of England with stunning scenery and a delightfully picturesque beach. As the youngest of three with two older brothers, for a working-class girl, this was a great place to grow up. 
but with her father struggling to stay in full-time employment. The family fought to survive on their mother's meagre income as a teaching assistant. Therefore, poverty was only ever a short step away. In 1976, when Jane was eight, their financial situation forced the Andrews to move two and a half miles west to Grimsby, a depressing port town on the Humber Estuary, which was once the home to the world's largest fishing fleet, but was now just a gloomy, rust-ridden ghost of a former industrial great. Their home was a small townhouse with no bathroom. And a toilet outside. Jane would later recall, from an early age, I was aware that things were not right. My parents were always arguing, but they were very proud. I remember one day we didn't have enough to buy a loaf of bread, and my mum had us looking down the sides of the city for money to scrape together. I was brought up to keep it in the family. We didn't let our relatives think we were anything other than comfortably off. Close friends would later regard Jane as bright, vivacious, a force of nature, but she never believed that she was loved. On the outside, she was bright and sunny, but on the inside, she was a fragile mess of insecurities. Educated at Hereford Secondary School, Jane excelled as she had drive and intelligence. She may only have been a thin wisp of a girl with pale skin and red hair, like a little lost matchstick, but bubbling underneath was a fiery determination to achieve. As a far cry from her upbringing, Jane dreamed of a great life, an amazing career, hobnobbing with the elite. And settling down with a wealthy husband, she had the brains and guts to succeed. But she was guided by one overriding need: to be loved. It was during those difficult teenage years that Jane was gripped with bouts of depression, anxiety, and an eating disorder. In later years, many of her psychological issues. Would be attributed to the sexual abuse she said she suffered as a child at the hands of one of her brothers. At one point, a lock had to be fitted to her bedroom door, as having chased his terrified little sister with a knife, he had hushed that the sex was our little secret, and that bad girls who tell go to prison. And although what happened in their family. Stayed in their family. Her mother would dispute this ever happened. Desperate to feel loved, but gripped with a persistent fear of rejection, as a young teen, Jane used sex to get whatever she wanted or needed. She would state, "I would sleep with someone, possibly on the first date, because I was frightened if I didn't, they would go." I allowed men to do anything they wanted to me. Many acts of which left this vulnerable and insecure girl feeling degraded and worthless. Age 15, driven by self-loathing and self-destruction, 
Jane swallowed every pill that she could find in the bathroom cabinet in an attempt to kill herself. She was found unconscious and collapsed on the bed. But they didn't call for help or take me to the hospital, Jane said. Again, it was kept in the family. Just like her abortion, age 17, which Jane later described as the most traumatizing experience of my life. Her world was in total chaos. But the one thing which kept her straight and true was her dreams. With barely three O-levels, Jane enrolled in the Grimsby College of Art, studying fashion and later designing children's clothes for the retail brand Marks and Spencers. Her life was heading in a brighter direction, but she knew that this path wouldn't give her the exclusive life that she so badly craved. In February 1988, 21-year-old Jane replied to an advert in The Lady, one of Britain's longest-running women's magazines, in which an unnamed client with two young children sought a personal dresser. In July, she was interviewed by the client, who was none other than Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, mother to Beatrice and Eugenie, and the wife of Prince Andrew, fourth in line to the throne. As a skinny, pale, and frail working-class girl from the rusty wilds of Grimsby, who had battled poverty, sexual abuse, suicide, and self-doubt, finally Jane's dreams had been exceeded. It took guts to run, but she knew that she had to. I was running away from all the horrible things in my past. I arrived at King's Cross with a suitcase and £10 in my pocket. I got in a taxi and I said, side door of Buckingham Palace. And the driver made a joke. One of the housemaids met me and took me up to my room. And there was a little posy of flowers from Fergie and a card that read, Welcome to the team, the boss. Jane Andrews had arrived. This was her dream job with a dream boss. And as two feisty redheads, Fergie and Jane struck up an instant rapport. The role didn't pay well as she only earned £18,000 a year as her dresser, accounts manager and companion. But it gave Jane access to a lifestyle she could never have reached any other way. To blend in, she hid a northern accent. Besotted with her royal employer, Jane mimicked Fergie's look, even to the point that she was given the nickname of Lady Jane, as people often mistook the two as old friends rather than a royal and her servant. And as an unashamed social climber, Jane put noses out of joint by claiming to be Fergie's lady-in-waiting rather than just a humble dresser. But once she was inside this very exclusive circle, she would do anything to remain within.
In April 1989, Jane met Christopher Dunn Butler, a divorced IBM executive. Seeing him less as a lover, and more as a step up the social ladder, demanding his commitment, in August 1990, they married. I so wanted to be loved, Jane said. Even though I was self-sufficient, I craved someone to take care of me. But as their love life floundered and their intimacy withered, I had a few flings. I'm not proud of it. Using sex as a substitute for love, Jane engaged in a string of affairs, and in 1995, they divorced. They remained on good terms, and whenever she needed a friend, it was Christopher who she called. For Jane, this breakup was a personal failure. She was so desperate for love and so blindsided by the unthinkable that she didn't see what a good man he was. Without a man by her side and someone to love, Jane felt like she was nothing. In 1996, Jane fell in love with Dmitri Horn, the son of a Greek shipping magnate. Only it wasn't love; it was need, a desperation to not let yet another wealthy husband-to-be slip through her fingers. Her friends said, when things were going fine, she was lovely, prim and proper, like an English rose. But as soon as things didn't go well, she would go absolutely crazy. When Dmitri ended the relationship, I was so angry. Jane would state, "On the mantelpiece was a cup and saucer that I knew was very special to him, and I smashed it. I went through his journal with a marker pen and blanked out all references to myself. I picked up his phone." And I smashed that too. I'm ashamed of what I did. I've never done that to anyone else's possessions. And with the pain of rejection being too much to bear, when her hopes of a happy life began to slip away, she lashed out. Once again, just as she had done in her teenage years, Jane took an overdose. And tried to end her life, but Jane couldn't focus if she didn't feel loved. Several failed relationships followed. One with Fergie's biographer Alan Starkey, who she harangued with jealous notes under his locked bedroom door, and one with an unnamed man, who she allegedly rang from an abortion clinic, threatening to kill his baby if he didn't take her back. Jane could be lovely and charming, but as a fragile woman, she could also be deceitful and manipulative. But love wasn't her only desire. In December 1995, two years earlier, Jane had attracted public notoriety when she mistakenly checked in. An unlocked suitcase belonging to the Duchess of York into the baggage hold of a BA jet at Kennedy Airport. 
quarter of a million pounds of the Duchess's jewellery vanished, including a diamond-encrusted necklace and matching bracelet gifted to Fergie as wedding presents from the Queen. Several sources have alleged that Jane stole these expensive items and that it had become clear that for every pound she spent on Fergie, she spent two pounds on herself. But these allegations were never proven. And then, in November 1997, Jane suffered her ultimate failure. As with Fergie divorced, and no longer a royal, needing to make cutbacks, Jane was made redundant. After nine years of loyal service, her exclusive life among the elite was over. Feeling worthless, she sank into depression. She struggled to pay her mortgage and forced to find a regular job, although she briefly worked at Theo Fennel, an exclusive high-end jeweler on the wealthy Fulham Road. She was now little more than a sales assistant, a job she could easily have got back home in Grimsby. Jane was back to square one. She was a no one with nothing. And then she met Tommy Cressman. In August 1998, at Min's restaurant in Knightsbridge, a mutual friend introduced the two. Jane was instantly smitten, as Tommy was fun-loving, charming and gregarious. Seven years her senior, he had trained as a stockbroker, but now he ran his own business. He mixed in elite circles. He hobnobbed with the stars. He was the son of a multimillionaire and he holidayed in a private villa on the French Riviera. And best of all, he was single. That night, they drank, they ate, and getting on well, they left together. Some said he was a little immature for his 37 years. He was an eternal boy, and worse still, a confirmed bachelor who loved fast cars, speedboats, and cartoons. A friend of Jane's later stated, he was quite spoilt, a willful chap who always had a laugh in his throat, but was very much a little boy who could be quite manipulative. On the surface, they looked well-suited, but underneath, they were not. That same friend later stated, she was very sweet, quite shy. Jane reminded me of a delicate bird. You wanted to pick her up carefully so as not to damage her wings. But she could put on a good show. Happy-go-lucky, confident, relaxed. But of course, she wasn't any of those things. And although they were badly mismatched, Jane saw this man as her one chance to return to the life that she loved. Only her happiness would only ever be fleeting. To many, 
it may be unsurprising that a spoiled little man-baby with an obsession with World War II regalia, who collected Nazi uniforms, SS weaponry, and whose most prized possession was an oak lump reputed to have been part of Adolf Hitler's desk, had a dark side. But he did. In court, Jane depicted Tommy as a sexual monster who was jealous, possessive, and abusive with a violent temper. By the winter, the rot in their relationship had set in. He would claim it was an accident, which had occurred while the couple were dancing, as now Jane was sporting several bruises and a broken wrist. Jane would state, I so wanted this relationship to work. I never knew when his moods were going to change. He could be so incredibly nice, and then with absolutely no reason whatsoever, he would hit me with a wooden brush. He always made me feel it was my fault. He would say I was weak. But so desperate was Jane's need for love, that when he asked her to move in, she said yes. In November 1998, after just three months together, Jane moved into Tommy's home at 74 Maltings Place, a bachelor pad purchased by his parents' deep pockets for their little boy just one year before. At first, he seemed like a charming romantic. He sent her roses, he wrote her love letters, he paid off her debts, and he always picked her up after work. But for her, these generous gestures had a more sinister motive. To ensure that I was never alone with anyone else but him. Over the next two years, the relationship began to stagnate. Jane hadn't been her usual self since the Duchess had made her redundant. And flitting between jobs, just as her father had during her difficult childhood that she so desperately had tried to flee, now she had become entirely reliant on Tommy. Over time, Jane would often state that their relationship had become increasingly volatile, characterized by physical violence, domination, and his escalating sexual demands, acts that she found abhorrent. She said that she first became aware of his sexual preferences when she found a pair of ladies' thigh-length boots and bondage straps amongst his possessions. She tried to end the relationship, but he begged her to stay. But when he realized that she had given the boots away to a charity shop, he hit her. In his bedside cabinet, she found two fetish magazines, Desire and Stiletto Heel. And when Jane, his fragile little bird trapped in a cage, couldn't fulfill his immediate needs. From the back pages, it is said, he would call the private numbers of sex workers for instant sexual relief. It is said that Tommy took her to the London Erotica Show, an expo for the sexually adventurous, which was described by a journalist as being about as erotic 
as a paperclip convention. But it was here that rubber garments were purchased for Jane to wear during sex, the kind worn by a sexual submissive. In one role-play session, with Tommy dressed up like an old schoolmaster in a mortarboard and a cloak, he had Jane dressed up as a schoolgirl in a short pleated skirt and one of his old school ties. And what began as an innocent adventure into kinky foreplay, she said, often descended into violence and rape. He was shouting at me in this stupid German voice. He was wielding this knife. What he meant to do was spread my legs by touching them with the knife. But I struggled and he caught the back of my right leg and cut me. It wasn't deep, but it was sore. I was so frightened that I spread my legs. For sexual sadists, humiliation and domination is all part of the thrill. But Tommy also had a preference for anal sex something that Jane found abhorrent. He buggered me. I didn't resist, because if I did, it hurt like hell. Nine times out of ten, he used to come inside me, which really disturbed me. Or he would ejaculate on me and rub it all over me, even my hair. On one occasion, I was having problems and I couldn't go to the loo. He'd had anal sex with me, and when he came out, he'd got excrement on his penis. He grabbed hold of my hair and screamed at me and yanked me down and made me lick it off. She never told anyone about the abuse, and she never called the police. In the months leading up to Tommy's death, their arguments grew more volatile. In December 1999, Jane ended up at Charing Cross Hospital, later stating that Tommy had thrown her down the stairs. And in June 2000, after an argument in which he allegedly accused her of flirting with another man, I got hit from behind, Jane would state, and went flying. He started kicking me around the kitchen. I was covered in cuts and bruises. I had to go into work the next day. I said to Tom, what am I going to tell them? And he laughed. He said, tell them you fell off your bike, you stupid cow. Why didn't I say anything to anybody? For the simple reason, I didn't think I'd be believed. I was ashamed. I felt like a failure. People at work would laugh and say, Tommy picks up Jane from work every night. Isn't it sweet? No, it isn't. That month, once again, she attempted suicide. But as Jane would later state in a court of law, sex and violence wasn't Tommy's only weapon. He knew her strengths, he knew her weaknesses, and he knew exactly which buttons to push and when. For Jane, marriage was everything. 
It was such a complex relationship that we had. I was the ultimate in insecurity. He was the ultimate in commitment phobia. I would threaten to leave. He would tell me to leave. And then he would reel me back in. He knew which carrots to dangle and which strings to pull. In the summer of 2000, Jane and Tommy went house hunting in the Cotswolds. The arguments had lessened, the relationship was better, and she believed that a marriage proposal was on the horizon. From the 1st to the 15th of September 2000, Jane and Tommy holidayed in the French and Italian Rivieras, cruising to a boat show in his mahogany river, a stylish elegant speedboat, and staying at his mother's opulent villa, drinking fine wines and relaxing to stunning sunsets, which glistened over a clear blue sea. Once again, Jane was back in the lifestyle that she craved so much, forgetting her past, as this was her future. Only Tommy had absolutely no intention of marrying Jane, ever. Heard bitterly quarrelling at Nice Airport and sat in stony silence for the flight back. Having returned to Malting's place, Jane later said, Tommy wanted me out. A fight ensued and he tried to throttle her. Their fight escalated through the next day, becoming so venomous that at 11.35 a.m., Tommy called the police, informing the operator, we are rowing, someone is going to get hurt. Upstairs, Jane could be heard screaming. And although he was asked, is anyone injured? Replying almost prophetically, not yet, but if you don't get here soon, someone is gonna get hurt. As this was a domestic and no crime had been committed, they were asked to resolve it themselves. At 12 p.m., moments after the call ended, according to Jane, he tied her to the bed with the cord of her dressing gown and anally raped her, saying, I'm really going to hurt you and no one will believe you. She never mentioned it to the police or friends. As I was so ashamed, I just couldn't talk about it. But fearing for her life, being trapped inside with a sexual sadist, she placed a cricket bat and a knife by the bed. Violated, bleeding and confused, having been made to feel worthless, later that night, Jane returned to their bedroom and asked, where do you want me to sleep? A which he replied, with me, of course. As again, he tried to penetrate her anus, shouting, you know you like it, you know you do. And although she would ultimately find some peace in her sleep, the violence didn't stop. During the night, 
she awoke to find him punching her hard in the face, screaming, I'm going to fucking kill you. Panicked, she grabbed the cricket bat and swung, hitting him hard across the head, but only stunned him. And as this wild-eyed sadist loomed over this petrified lady, yanking her back to the bed by her hair, I was holding the knife as he came towards me. I don't know, it just went into him. It must have done. Petrified beyond belief, Jane fled and tied the door handle to the banister using her bathrobe's cord so that the monster inside, who had repeatedly beaten and raped her, could never hurt her again. Moments later, Jane got into her car and drove fast, fearing what he would do to her if he ever caught her. But he never would as in order to protect herself from danger, she had killed him. Tommy was dead. Everything you have heard in this episode, so far, is entirely true. But only if you believe Jane's version. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, if you can't get enough of a wobbly, pointless loser waffling on about tea, cake and coots, stay tuned till after the break for a little bit more information about this case, a little quiz and a treat in Extra Mile. But before that, here's a little promo. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Kerry Forrest and Kerry Perkins. Two Kerrys in one go, the plural of which I'm guessing is the Kerry, as Kerrysees sounds weird. Thank you both of you for supporting the show, it's very much appreciated. Plus a thank you to Mark Dunstan, Mark Gibson and Dawn Smith for your very kind donations via the Murder Mile merch shop. I thank you all. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Oh, dear Lord. Well, as you can tell, I'm sounding very healthy at the moment. Obviously, uh, uh came back from CrimeCon. There was no uh, air conditioning in there. Uh, I thought to myself, this is a COVID hotspot. I'm going to get sick. Oh, dear. Luckily, I haven't had COVID, which is good. I've done all my PCR tests. I've done my lateral flow tests. All come back ne- negative. I think what it is, talking to other people, I think it's just that we're not used to being in rooms with people anymore. Because we were in a room with lots of people for um, two days. I think, do you know, all these germs that we normally would get, that our bodies fight off, we're just not getting. And now we're kind of going back into these situations, kind of little colds are creeping in faster. So, yeah. So anyway, everyone, welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, <coughs> let me just pop on a tea at the moment. I might do another coffee because it's bloody early. It's bloody early in the morning. It's uh, because... Uh, coots outside are noisy. Um, we've I'm not too far away from Crossrail, and they're really annoying bastards. They seem to do some drilling at about 7 a.m., so I have to beat them. I'm near a, uh, a private airport where loads of little pricks come out and they're nasty little little aircraft that go at two miles an hour and uh, really annoy everyone. Uh, and uh yeah so i'm just i'm up super early to do this but i'm exhausted i'm a bit exhausted uh but there we go there we go and the coots outside are being bloody noisy it's not randy season it's not humpy humpy season but got a couple of coots outside who are really annoying really annoying anyway so (coughs) yeah I've been struggling with a chest infection for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I've battled through doing the the my murder mile walks, which has been good. I've enjoyed those. Thanks to everyone who turned up for those. Uh, but yeah, my last week, oh dear, my throat was really killing. I struggled through that one. Uh, but luckily, I've been on these little things. They're called Jakeman's. Do you know when you go into the uh, chemist shops and you go, oh, you pick up all your expensive £4, £5 Beecham things and you go, oh, I use that. And they're always shit and they never seem to work. I've been on these little sweets called Jakeman's. They're kind of old traditional sweets with like menthol in them and stuff like that. They're brilliant. 
they really help me get through the like if i have a sucky sweet before bedtime great uh so i'm just doing that at the moment what else is going on oh cake of the week oh uh, my little uh, bakery up the road went there um and it's a lovely bakery uh, and I, a lot of the things that I've picked up, I've put on uh, uh, Patreon. So if you go on there, there's Cake of the Week on there. Um, I had a big chocolate donut yesterday. I had something else as well. So bread, bread, a bread pudding for Dindins. And now I've got a big millionaire shortbread. Mm, it's got the shortbread on the bottom. It's got the um, the, the caramel, hard caramel in the center, then a hard chocolate on top. God, it looks good. going to tuck into that. Have no fear about that. What else is going on in the world? Um, uh, just so you know, uh, in this extra mile, I'm not going to cover too much about this case, only because the whole point about these two episodes is that I'm co- I want I deliberately wanted to have a case where I could cover two sides of the of exactly the same thing. Hang on, tease up. Uh, oh, I just oh. I just spilled a tiny bit of uh, hot water on, onto my foot. That wasn't good. Not useful. Uh, so that's there. Hang on. I'm just going to open these curtains. I can open these up now and Coot can make whatever bloody noise he wants. Annoying little bastard that he is. Yeah, he's having a, he's having a little flap at the moment. He's going, oh, look at me. I've made lots of a noise. Anyway, so that's there. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say too much about this case, only because what I've been looking for for ages was a nice case. Not a nice case, obviously. Uh, a case where you could tell two sides of the same story, and this one kind of cropped up. It has been told times before, but the problem is everyone tells the same story. And when you when you go through all the details and you put it all together, what Jane says and what you could say Tommy says, or Tommy's side of it, even though he's dead. Uh, when you look at them side by side, actually, they're two very different stories. So that's what I wanted to do. So I'm not going to tell you too much about uh, the case, the extra bits in here. Uh, just because I, I, I haven't written part two yet and I don't want to spoil it. But I've, I, I've got something interesting that I'm going to play you. So that'll be good. What else is going on? <coughs> Apart from me coughing everywhere and uh, eating cake and obsessing about Eva not much else um uh yeah I'm going to play something really interesting very shortly which you'll enjoy and we'll do the quiz obviously um exciting news uh I had planned to kind of even up my my next year and kind of uh make sure that I could do some traveling I decided uh, ages ago Adam at uh, uh crime publishing network had asked me uh, if I wanted to write a book and I'd said no I said I don't really have time um well i said yes so that's all exciting so uh in we're hoping to release it in june which means i need to pull my finger out and get it finished by the end of march uh so that's what i'm doing now i'm writing a new book uh which will which will be published so uh yeah that's all very exciting a nice true crime book so that will be you'll hear more about that on murder mile at some point that's all very exciting yay um Oh, I've got windy pops. Oh, best keep that in. Right, let's do some quiz questions. Um, question number one. Jane was born in which town? You can hear Crossrail is just opening up now. Oh, God, it's horrible. It sounds like War of the Worlds. You know when the, the sounds with War of the Worlds when you hear a... 
it's a low horrible resonant tone you can hear that in the background and behind me there'll be a drill in a bit going it's it's not a drill it's like a a boring machine it goes and that's like from 8 a.m until 6 p.m and these i i've been here not in this area but back and forth about for two years and it's been like that for two years and i know the residents are really fucked off with it Crossrail, who fucking needs it? What a waste of money. Well, at least it's kept some people employed. That's what it's all about. And uh, some it's made some rich people even richer. Yay! That's what life's all about. Um, question number two. What did Jane study at college? Question number three. How much money did Jane have in her pocket when she started at Buckingham Palace? Question four. What did what did Fergie's greeting card say? Question five. What job did Jane's first husband Christopher do? Question six. This is a difficult one. What make of boat? Oop, that was definitely a burpee. What make of boat did Tommy own? Question seven. What two items did Jane put by the side of the bed? <coughs> Question eight. How was the London erotica show described by the journalist? Where? Oh, Question nine. Where did Tommy and Jane go house hunting? And question ten. What was Jane's middle names? She had two. Uh, so some of those are quite difficult questions. Uh, so... What I am going to do now, um, uh, this was something that happened at CrimeCon. It, it kind of happened as a kind of a spur of the moment thing. But I decided to do a live version of episode 16 of Murder Mile. It was only a small room. There was only about 25 people in there. Um, I, I, do you know what? I hadn't rehearsed for it. I hadn't read the script in three, <coughs> three years. I was a bit worried about it. And I was massively hung over as well because we'd been out until like three in the morning the night before. So we were very pissed. But I decided to do uh, a live version of the uh, the Richard Rhodes Henley story. And what I did was I got the audience to do the music uh, and the sounds. And it went really well. And uh, weirdly, it was the best reading of a script I've ever done. Because this one you've just heard has taken more than an hour and a half to record. Whereas the one live on stage, I seem to do it in about 26 minutes. And I barely made any mistakes, which was a miracle. So uh, enjoy that. I'm going to play that. And then we're going to come back afterwards and do um, the the quiz questions. So enjoy Murder Mile Live. And if you enjoy it, <gasps> uh, come to CrimeCon next year. The tickets are now available. And if you use the offer code MILE, you get 10% off. Oh, exciting. Yes. More bloody advertising. Right. Enjoy the show. <coughs> Okay, so uh, as you know, normally I do the kind of a scripted podcast and there's always music with it and sound effects. Obviously, I don't have musical sound effects with me today, so I would like you to do the music and the sound effects, if that's okay. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to do an episode that we kind of had, God, like almost four years ago. Uh, but what I'll, I'll do is I'll interject and if you want to you can do a bit of music if I say street scene you can you can be like or, or, or people chatting or whatever whatever and or, we'll just have a bit of fun is that alright? let's get ready okay do you want do you want to know the, the three tone at the start of the murder while they're duh? 
Okay, I need you all to do that after three and then I'll start. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Lovely. Lovely. That was really good. Johnny and Eric, who write the music for that, would be absolutely happy with that. I'm going to do it one more time and then we'll get into this. Okay, ready? And go. Welcome to Murder Mile. Oh, I haven't read the script in a long while. Uh, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders. All set within one square mile of the West End. Which we all know is bullshit now, because obviously I do West London, but we'll, we'll ignore that. Today's episode is about the senseless murder of Big Al. Oh, the burly purveyor of illicit pornography on Dean Street who was robbed by Richard Rhodes Henley. It's that one. A man so hopelessly addicted with his all-consuming need to masturbate over mucky mags that it would drive him to kill. <gasps> Episode 16, everyone's favorite. Uh, my name is Michael, I am your tour guide. This is murder, oh, I've gone ahead on the script. Yeah. This is how it normally sounds when I'm recording it, only I don't have a nice audience in front of me. My name is Michael, I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 16, Richard Rhodes Henley, the seaman, the seaman, and the porn peddler. Today, I'm on Dean Street. So I needed some car honking, you could be chatting, you can room, bit of sounds from you guys there. Lovely, oh. Could someone be a costermonger like, oh, cool, blimey, governor? That would be lovely. Uh, today I'm on Dean Street, roughly 300 feet north of Old Compton Street and 300 feet south of Oxford Street, in a part of Soho so heavily renovated, scrubbed and sanitised that much of Soho's original but admittedly seedy character has been erased. As the property prudes move in and any hint of originality moves out. As you can tell... I don't like the renovation of Soho. I think we've got that throughout the series, haven't we? Yeah. In fact, the only culture left in this part of Dean Street is the famous Soho Theatre. Immediately behind me, if I was on the street, but I'm not now, obviously I'm in St Paul's, uh, where every night a wealth of right on rank... This happens every time I, I record. Where every night a wealth of right on wankers, dressed in beards, boots and feather boas, waffle on about how literally... Yards from here, Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, which they profess to know the finer points of, and yet have never actually read. While starving, having refused to eat sushi from Wagamamas, as they're allergic to fish, intolerant to rice, and are too full of their own shit, <laughs> and are off to watch a truly dull arty play about a, a one-legged Armenian stripper with AIDS, knowing it'll be dross, but hoping, I'm on a bit of a rant, besides being culturally enriching, it'll either have boobs, bums, or a cock in it. I feel sorry for anyone who's never listened to Murder Mile. It's like, it's like what the fuck is this? Uh, today, 82 Dean Street has been entirely demolished and replaced with yet another yucky monstrosity. And yet, the area around 82 Dean Street is a, far cry, is, is a far cry from the seedy street full of sex pests that it once was. Can you do the sounds of masturbators for me? 
Being the bastion, uh, now being the bastion for uh, closet perverts uh, and the chronic masturbator, um, as a drove of dirty old men in flashing backs, smash, uh, my call, as a drove of dirty old men in flashing backs, stifle boners as they trawl the mucky bookshops in search of, in search of tits, tights, and tassels. Michael, this is absolutely filthy. One of these men in search of a triple X thrill was so addicted to his need to spill his seed that it would consume his life and end another. His name was Richard Rhodes Henley. I found a picture of him recently. If you remember, this, this was episode 16, like a long time ago, and I had, I'd never found a picture of him, but I, I, th I thought I'd worked out what he looked like, and he was exactly, he's basically an egg with glasses. Uh, on Wednesday the 24th of October, 1956, HMSC Iroquois, uh, a tribal class destroyer under the command of the Canadian Navy, berthed in Southampton Dock on the English coast. After 14 months on patrol in the Atlantic Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, the Red Sea, and hostile waters off the Korean post-war peninsula. Can we have some kind of sat waves and... Lovely. Can someone do a foghorn in the distance? Lovely. Right, well, that was a foghorn, wasn't it? I was on it before you said foghorn. In a room like this, that, 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 that could be dangerous. <laughs> Needing six days to resupply, refuel and repair before returning to its home port of Halifax in Canada, half of the ship's crew were given three days leave. I'm putting on my posh voice for you today, the podcast voice. Uh, afterwards, it will go back to being normal with hint of, hint of brummy in there, because I'm a brummy. Part Scottish, part Irish as well. Um, why, why am I saying that? Um, uh, and as a military vessel of mostly men who'd been cramped together in an over oversized tin can for just over a year, with no privacy, no space, and no outlet for their passions, the second the gangplank was lowered, with a whoop, a cheer, Yay. You guys are excellent. The dock was splashed with a sea of white. See what I did there? As the great, as the, as great goops of overexcitable seamen set out in search of girls. Yes, it's highbrow. So we're doing episode 16. Richard Rhodes Henley, the seaman, the seaman and the porn peddler. It's a bit of a filthy story. Um, pulling away from the pack, cutting quite a solitary figure as he limped along on his crutches... Uh, his, left foot, his left foot lame, having twisted it a few days earlier, was 26-year-old leading seaman Richard Rhodes Henley. And although he was dressed like the others in a navy-issue uniform of black shoes, dark, a dark woolen jer jersey, a round cap, and black bell-bottom trousers, he looked a little odd as his hero's clothes badly hung off his tall, thin, and gangly frame, with, a f with his little feminine mouth and thick, Lensed glasses. I always struggle with words, and that was thick lensed glasses. Whew, Michael. Oh. And yet, described by his commanding officer as a cook of exemplary, exemplary character, who conducted on board, who, who's con, who, as I said before, a dyslexic with a stutter, uh, whose conduct on board was always first class. Henry's impressive work ethic. Uh, wasn't just in his deep-rooted desire for praise, promotion, and a need to blend in, but to distract him from his dirty addiction. Ooh. 
and we all know what that is. <laughs> Henley was a masturbator. Can we have masturbation noises, please? <laughs> Henley was a masturbator, a chronic masturbator, who dove, into his, who dove into work to keep his mind on the job and his hands out of his pants. As the second he wasn't... Sorry. As the second he wasn't whipping an egg white, f- fluffing a pancake batter, or frothing a custard into a creamy head, thank you, Michael, his dirty desire uh, would take over, and he would dive into the uh, communal navy toilet, known as the head, for a five-knuckle shuffle. Yeah, I don't think that this episode is really going to win any uh, Booker Prizes, is it? Needing to masturbate on an, on an almost hourly basis, Henley's sexual tension was out of control and impossible to s- sustain on a cramped ship at sea, with not a single second to himself. And so the second he disembarked, he set off on the first train to London and headed into Soho, as all the perverts do. Like myself, actually. <laughs> Eleven years after the end of World War II, with rationing over, prosperity blooming, and the good times having returned, London's West End was the place to be. Do you know what? I've never had a recording go this well. This is really weird. When I'm recording it at home, every line I fuck up. (laughs) And then you'll hear me going, why are you fucking up, Michael? And I'm screaming at myself, and then there's coots outside going, meh, 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 and I'm screaming at them. It never goes this well. Which means I'm going to cock up now. (laughs) Shit. Um, As with every bar buzzing, every club thumping, every dance hall fit to burst, and finally the the dark-lit streets of Soho being bathed once once again in the bright lights of Piccadilly Circus, with just three days' leave, every sailor hit the West End, hoping to soak up as much vice as possible, whether girls, booze, or gambling. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. But being a man with so little money and so many debts, Henley never gambled. As a a devout Catholic with a wife back home, Henley never visited brothels. And as a drinker, even though he drank, he he always drank alone. But these were not his vices, as his drug of choice was pornography. Oh, dirty man, dirty, (laughs) dirty. Uh, During his three days leave in London, Henley did very little else except trawl the mucky bookshops in search of sexy magazines. But his quest was fruitless, fruitless, fruitless. Uh, As even though Soho was uh, London's sex shop central, Henley wasn't interested in those mildly titillating top shelf titles where scantily clad ladies display an inch of ankle, a bit of boob, and if you... Can't, oh, no, I've got to do this bit. And if you were really lucky, I apologise. A flash of fanny fluff. <laughs> what does that even mean? I should have read this first. Uh, but having been a chronic masturbator since he was 12, Henley's addiction was out of control. And with every single sexy photo and only able to satisfy him for two or three self-love sessions before boredom would creep in and Henley would need something harder. 
On Friday the 26th of October, having purchased 25 pornographic photos from a sex shop just a few streets away in Piccadilly, and knowing this was barely enough filth to sustain his sexual appetite for a week, Henley asked the owner if he knew of any bookshops that sold harder porn, which was kept off the shelves and out of sight, as this porn was of such strong nature, it was illegal. It's very good. That's very, oh, I like, I like that. I like, the, I like the way that crept in. Um, the store Henley was directed towards was at 82 Dean Street, and it was ran by Alan Robinson. And this is the bit where the... I need another... So, ready? Lovely. Love, I'm going to hire you guys every time I do an episode. Um, although he was born John Allen Dixon Robinson, Big Allen, as, uh, as he was known, was a 36-year-old man of impressive stature, being over six feet tall and weighing 17 stone, with, an unf- with unflinching eyes a- and a beard like a beard. A beard like a beard. <laughs> and, a, and a bear-like beard. How did I balls that up? And a, and a no- beard like a beard. You can, I, that's going to have to go on a mug, isn't it? He had a beard like a beard. Michael is such a twat. Uh, and a no-nonsense World War II, uh, and a no-nonsense World War II veteran with the Royal Fusiliers, his imposing size and gruff demeanour was perfect for his op- occupation as a Soho sex shop manager, a job that required him to deal with all manner of unsavoury characters, like drunks, perverts, weirdos, conmen, and gangsters. Oh. I can't think of any other sounds that we put in at this point. I'm sure we'll get there. Situated at 82 Dean Street, Big Allen's sex shop was the epitome of discretion. As unlike most jazz mag joints, there was no frosted glass and no neon signs flashing triple X. Instead, it was a simple white plaster facade with, an, with no number, uh, with a number but with no name. Just the words books and magazines, emblazoned on the walls and above a dark wooden door. And in the windows, which were protected by black wrought iron railings, were displayed a deceptive collection of erotic novels, lurid fiction and dubious history books about naked, about naked African tribes. Given the allusion to anyone who wasn't in the know, I've even inverted commas it in there, that this was just a very normal bookshop. That evening, before closing time, as this was the bookshop's, uh, as the last of the bookshop, <sighs> come on lips, work. As the last of the bookshop's customers were shuffling out, in walked a thin, slim, bespectacled sailor, replete in black bell-bottom trousers and navy epaulets of a leading seaman, who was limping on a pair of crutches. And although he was a little shy and socially awkward, he seemed polite quiet and harmless. Their discussion was cordial and brief. Henley asked Big Allen if he had any hardcore films to sell. He had, and offered him three 16mm stag films for £35 each. Henley agreed. And although in today's money that would add up to a whopping £1,800 for three 10-minute skin flicks, it gets worse. Henley promised he'd return with the money the next day. I love this story. 
This is one that's once someone someone in Soho ages ago said you should do this this episode. There's a, a bookshop that was robbed, and I was like, that sounds really boring. And then when I got out of the case file, I just went, holy shit, I love this story. It's everything I like. Not not pornography, obviously. <laughs> sorry, uh, but Henley had no intention of buying them as he had no money. But what he did have was an all-consuming need for harder and stronger porn, and he would do anything to get it. Spending that Friday evening at the Union Jack Club in Lambeth, South London, an exclusive club for members of the armed forces, Henley sat alone and sunk back a few whiskies. Why am I miming that? This is a pocket, it's because you're here. That's why. He sunk back a few whiskies, contemplated his rapid descent into a life of crime, and later drunkenly stumbled back to the Waverley Hotel in Bloomsbury, where he unpacked his kit bag, in which he'd hidden a 9mm German Luger pistol. Can anyone do the sound of a Luger pistol coming out of a bag? (laughs) No, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Um, Born in Creston in Canada, a small town on the southeastern side of British Columbia, close to the US border, Richard Rhodes Henley was an only child, conceived in illegitimacy and whose very existence was blamed for the failure of his father's marriage. Regularly beaten by his alcoholic abusive father, Henley's childhood was spent either running away from home or being put into foster care. And the more he drank, the more isolated he became. Trapped in the solitary, friend, trapped in the solitary friendless world, never once having a loving mentor nor role model to guide him, or the tricky issues in life of love, life, or sex. Aged just 12 years old, It was during those hormonally difficult and emotionally sensitive years as his body grew and puberty puberty bloomed that Henley's father caught his own son masturbating. A natural act that almost all curious boys engage in, which is easily pacified by calmly discussing the facts of life. But that is exactly what his father should have done, but he didn't. Henley was abused, Henley was beaten, Henley was whipped. And for the following year, 12-year-old Richard Rhodes Henley would spend every night lying on his bed with his wrists tightly tightly shackled and bound to a rough leather harness secured around his waist. A barbaric device which meant to stop this wicked boy from pleasuring himself. and would cure him of his seedy uh, affliction. But it backfired spectacularly and turned a common childhood habit that he may have grown out of into a dark, alluring and rebellious addiction. In 1947, aged 17, Henley ran away from home for the final time. In 1948, age 18, he enlisted in the Canadian Navy uh, to see the world and escape his father forever. In 1950, aged 20, as a, as a, my brain's about to say remote, as a devout Roman Catholic, why would I say that? He hastily married his first girlfriend, just like his father before him, and conceived an unplanned child out of wedlock. And as the love dried up, the sex stopped, and the marital bed drew, and the marital bed grew cold. Henley turned to his one true love, 
masturbation. By 1956, having docked in Southampton, Richard Rhodes Henley was a married man with a five-year-old son, a blossoming naval career, and financial responsibility. In truth, he wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a drunk or a druggie. He was never, phys he was never physically, sexually, or verbally abusive. He had no STIs, no STDs, nor any major health issues. And unusually, he wasn't a peeper, a flasher, a groper, a stalker, or a sex pest. In fact, prior to this moment, he had never committed a criminal act. But with his drug of choice being pornography, his addiction had consumed his life, his thoughts, his money, and even his actions. And now, being hopelessly broke, he would do anything to get his fix. On the morning of Saturday the 27th of October 1956, at the ungodly hour of 6.30am, Richard Rhodes Henley was witnessed pacing impatiently on his crutches outside of Big Al's shop at 82 Dean Street. And although his intention was to commit an armed robbery, he didn't hide his face and he didn't have a disguise. Instead, he wore his full naval uniform, complete with cap, boots, and bell-bottoms. At 9.30 a.m., having, having nervously paced and waited outside for more than three hours, the bookshop finally opened. But it wasn't the terrifyingly imposing figure of Big Al who unlocked the dark wooden door. It was his smaller, younger assistant, Robert Edward Clement, also known as Bob. Racked with nerves and shaking with tension, Henley must have thought that his fate, that fate was smiling upon him, as even though in his pocket he had stashed the 9mm German Luger pistol, loaded with eight bullets in the mag and one in the chamber, with the street being dead and the shop being empty, and Bob being alone, the robbery would be quick no one would get hurt, and Henley could, Henley could catch the next train back to Southampton Dock before his ship departed, making a slick robbery followed by the perfect getaway. But it was not to be. As with Bob, as with Bob claiming to know nothing about any pornographic films in which his boss had apparently stashed in the back room, a room he never used as it was practically empty, Bob told Henley to return when Big Alan was back at 12 p.m. another two and a half hours later. For two and a half hours, Henley hobbled along the streets of Soho, nervously biting his lip. As with his three days of leave almost over and his orders to return to the ship to, at Southampton Dock by 11 a.m. at the very latest, torn between risking his career and his need for harder porn, his addiction won, and Henley sauntered into the Rosencrown Tavern, 20 feet away on the corner of St Anne's Court, for a large slug of Dutch courage. And being so nervous, he knocked back two fluid ounces of whiskey in one gulp. God, I could do with that now. <laughs> oh, God. Um, this, this is, of course, if you believe Henley's confession. As Bob denied ever opening the shop, ever having keys ever meeting Henley, or even handling any po illegal pornographic films, 
a claim which absolves him of any crime. And yet, although Henley claimed that he was drunk at the time of the murder, he was never witnessed in the Rosencrown pub that morning by either any of the customers or the landlord. He did not appear drunk. And when checked by the police doctor, Henley had no alcohol in his system. Anyway, at 12 p.m., with Henley supposedly being inebriated, he returned to the Mucky Bookshop at 82 Dean Street, which consisted of a single room barely 20 feet wide by 20 feet deep, with every inch of wall space riddled with trashy paperbacks. As a small smattering of sheepish-looking customers leafed through the lurid novels, oh, Michael, leafed through the lurid novels while shuffling near to the, hard, to the soft-core pornographic magazines which hung over the shop's serving hatch, behind which stood Bob and Alan. With Henley being instantly recognisable in his sailor suit, Big Al grabbed the keys and discreetly ushered him into the locked room behind the shop, where they privately talked in hushed tones. Can you give me hushed tones? Oh, you good. <laughs> the back room was bare, except for an empty fireplace. A small wicker chair, oddly placed in the centre of the room, which neither man sat in. And in a waist-high wooden cabinet, from which Alan pulled three metal tins of 65mm film. You know those old film cans that used to have for, for cinema releases? Heavy as fuck. And uh, that was, obviously, this is in the old days. when, Without internet, obviously, you had glossy films, and you had... Uh, so you had to carry around celluloid, apparently. I wouldn't. Um, with almost £2,000 worth of hardcore porn in his hands, a loaded luger in his pocket, and this very private room secured by a lockable door, a successful end to Henley's pornographic heist was in sight. But with his need for newer, harder, and more explicit images being so overwhelming, greed had taken over, and Henley wanted more. Thinking he must have met his dream customer, and that this was his lucky day, Big Al led Henley back to the, the half-full shop, through the partitioned area behind which Bob stood, and also Sin Sidney Bayard, the shop's accountant, and ushered, Alan, and ushered him into the back office, where once again, with greater discretion and even quieter voices, Big Alan and Henley finally shook hands on a price. For three 16mm films and a box containing 784 pornographic photos, Henley would pay £2,064, which in today's money is just over £4,500. A price which, as we know, Henley had no plans to pay. Waiting until Alan... Had, uh, waiting until Alan had wrapped up the films and the photos into two discreetly packaged parcels of brown paper, Henley gave his excuse that he had his money hidden about his person and he didn't want to reveal it in the shop. And seeing a large bulge in his jacket, not that, not that, <laughs> dirty, dirty, Big Al faithfully guided Henley and the parcels back to the privacy of the locked back room. The second the door was opened, Henley pulled out his pistol and aimed the barrel between Big Alan's eyes. 
but with surprisingly sharp reflexes, which belied his imposing size. Alan got the jump on Henley, slammed the backroom door into his face, and believing his armed robbery was a success, Henley fled down the dusty passageway towards the dark wooden door, but it was all a ruse. There was no way, there was no way that Alan was ever going to part with almost £5,000 worth of illegal pornographic stock. And before Henley had reached the front door, he turned to see the six foot one, 17 stone bulk of Big Alan bearing down upon him, with fists clenched and eyes in anger. And feeling truly afraid, Henley panicked and pulled the trigger. I thought I'd do that one myself. I haven't done any sound effects yet. And yet, as Alan lay there, dying on the floor, the events which followed it were almost comical. Terrified at what his addiction had driven him to do, as Henley hopelessly limped into Dean Street, clutching his stolen parcels of porn, but having left his crutches behind... Bob and Sidney chased the hobbling armed robber at an, at an impressively slow speed. <laughs> as, with, as with Bob having a gammy leg, and a rather rotund Sidney managing little more than a quick waddle, they shouted, Stop that man! He's shot somebody! Which is odd to say when you're talking about your boss. As Henley limped down into St Anne's Court, dropping both parcels of porn in the process. Ignoring the commotion, a kind lady stepped up to help the disabled Henley pick up his scattered parcels of porn. <laughs> and although Bob and Sidney, who were limping and waddling behind him in a half-speed half pursuit, called out to a passing tra taxi driver on Wardour Street, shouting, Don't take that sailor! He's shot a man! With the cabbie, Morris Gold, thinking they were drunken nutters. He picked up Henley and headed in the, in the direction of Waterloo Station to get his train back to Southampton. Henley almost got away. But sensing that something was up, Gould drove Henley to Trenchard House, a local police section house just one street away on Broadwick Street, where the taxi driver handed the clearly bewildered, shaking and ghostly white Canadian sailor over to Police Constable Alan Cole. But did Henley confess to his crime? No, of course he didn't. He gave the police a cock and bull story about how he'd been beaten up by a teddy boy who stole his crutches. <laughs> his bullshit story of which ended with Henley dragging the unconscious PC on a wild goose trace around the streets of Soho in search of this mysterious and entirely fictional assailant. All whilst, all whilst hiding the 9mm Luger pistol in his pocket and clutching almost five grand's worth of highly illegal pornography under his arms. Moments later, as he neared Dean Street, Henley was arrested. 30 minutes later, John Allen Dixon, also known as Big Allen, died of his injuries at Charing Cross Hospital. Oh, don't, don't, that'll make me cry. The will, the will. I blub a lot when I'm writing these and, and when I'm performing them as well. Uh, and although, although a single bullet had passed through his bowel, his liver and his back, 
causing massive internal injuries, Allen ultimately died of shock. Upon his arrest at West End Central Police Station, Henley gave a full confession, freely admitting that he had committed an armed robbery to fuel his addiction for hardcore pornography and masturbation. He was searched, and amongst his possessions they found a £10 note, eight shillings in silver, seven and a half pence in copper, one Canadian dollar, a return ticket to Southampton, his Navy pass, an organ donor card, not that organ, uh, thank God, a liquor, a liquor permit, ten pornographic photos, plus another 25 indecent images, plus two parcels containing three 16mm hardcore films, numerous mucky books and magazines, and another 784 illicit photos, as, as well as a bottle of liniment, Although it, uh, and although it is used as pain relief lotion amongst those with a tingling sensation in the more private parts of the body. So we still don't know why he was carrying that. Hence it was here that Henley finally admitted that he had a problem. <laughs> finally. On the 5th of December 1956 at the Old Bailey, Richard Rhodes Henley was declared mentally fit to stand trial for murder, a charge which normally warrants a sentence of life in prison. But with Henley having taken her life in pursuit of a robbery, he was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to death. But not wishing to cause a major diplomatic incident between two allies uh, by having a Canadian sailor executed on British soil, the Home Secretary, uh, Mr. Gwilym Lloyd George, ordered a reprieve of the case and within days, Henley's death sentence had been commuted from execution to the most lenient sentence possible, just 15 years in prison. Richard Rhodes Henley was sent to HMP Parkhurst, a brutal Victorian maximum security prison on the Isle of Wight, a cold and lonely two-mile island just off the English coast, where, as a murderer, he wasn't permitted to work in the kitchens, thank God. So instead he stayed in his cell 23 hours a day, seven days a week for 15 years, lying on his bed, alone with nothing but his dirty thoughts, an eager penis, and his fumbling hands. And with no doctors to treat his addiction, no psychiatrists to cure his affliction, and no drugs to dampen his sexual urges, only a lot of time and too much boredom, on an undisclosed day in the early 1970s, having served his sentence, and I'm sure having learned his lesson. Richard Rhodes Henley was released from prison. He boarded a boat and returned to his home country of Canada. And so, to Murder Mile's Canadian listeners, I just wanted to say, good night and sleep well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Murder Mile. Thank you. Wow. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. So yes, I'm still coughing my lungs out. Oh, <coughs> lovely. Time for a coffee. Oh, a coffee and a Jakeman's. Oh yes, love Jakeman's. And and a cake. Right, let's do answers to the questions. Um, question number one. Jane was born in which town? If you said Grimsby, you were wrong, because it was, of course, Cleethorpes. 
Uh, she moved to Grimsby later on. Uh, question two. Where, uh, what did Jane study at college? She studied fashion. There's a bit of a David Bowie impression there. From David, David Bowie. Fashion. Uh, uh, question three. How much money did Jane have in her pocket when she started at Buckingham Palace? She had ten pounds. Ten whole pounds. Uh, question four. What did Fergie's greeting card say? It said, welcome to the team of the boss. Question five. What job did Jane's first husband, Christopher, do? He was an IBM executive. Question six. What make of boat did Tommy own? It was a reaver. A reaver is kind of one of those posh uh, 1950s style boats that you imagine kind of uh, Frank Sinatra on. It's kind of got a mahogany panelling and stuff like that. Very posh. Uh, Question seven. What two items did Jane put by the side of the bed? It was a knife and a cricket bat. Uh, Obviously, with the the murder on this case, I've only told Jane's side of the story and I've glossed over a lot of items because the whole point is that next week we're really going to start drilling down into a lot of the things that Jane said. So so with this story, I've gone entirely her perspective. I've deliberately missed out stuff. I've deliberately skipped over stuff because she's telling her side of the story. And that's what people do is they they emphasize some things and they gloss over other things and they miss other details out. So that's what I'm doing with this. So next week, everything that she said, we're going to start drilling back into it and uh, kind of focusing more on kind of what what the what the evidence says. Um, Question eight. uh, Yeah. Uh, How was the London erotica show described by a journalist? This was a nice little quote that I found hidden away in uh, uh I went searching to find out what the London Erotica show was about because I don't know anything about it obviously and it was in it was in the Observer I think I found uh, the original review for it and it said it was as exciting as a paperclip convention I'm sure it was uh, question 9 where did Tommy and Jane go house hunting it was in the Cotswolds and what was Jane's middle names well, her full, her full name was Jane Dawn Elizabeth Andrews. So it was Dawn and Elizabeth. There you go. So that was that. Hope you enjoyed that. Part two next week. This is just a two-parter. Uh, and hopefully my throat will be better by then. Time to open up a Jakeman's. Yeah. Get in my belly and sort out my throat. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Tatty bye. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.